In 2021, more than three in four teachers reported frequent job-related stress, compared to 40% of other working adults. 27% of teachers reported symptoms of depression, compared to just 10% of other adults. Welcome to Kids Can, Healthy Kids, Better World, a podcast from Action for Healthy Kids. Welcome back to Kids Can, presented by Action for Healthy Kids, a show highlighting everyday issues children face today and featuring conversations on how you can help the kids in your life. I'm your host, Rob Bisegli. Today, we're joined by global educator, speaker, author, and policymaker, Sean Slade. Sean is currently the U.S. Head of Education at the Global Education Organization, BTS Spark. He's also a co-founding member for the UNESCO Chair on Global Health and Education, a member of the OECD's Future of Education 2030, and a social and emotional learning expert for NBC's Today. In our conversation, he explains his work with ASCD and the whole child approach and many more insights and findings he's discovered over his 25 years in international education. Welcome to Kids Can, Sean. I'm so uh, so glad to have you on the episode today. I can't remember exactly when we first met, but I know that it was quite a while ago. And uh, for years, we've been collaborating to promote whole child health. And in fact, you played a leadership role along with experts from uh, CDC in helping the whole school, whole community, whole child model get off the ground. And now, as you and I both know, it's the gold standard in our field. We're here primarily to talk about teacher care, but I do want to recognize you for the important work you've done to advance the whole child model. It must be pretty gratifying to look back and know that the work continues on and is having such a positive impact on kids. Yeah, certainly. And thanks for inviting me, Rob. It's great to connect again. I think it's been at least, I don't know, almost probably a decade since we probably first met. And thanks for the kudos around the the WISC model, as it's called, but I'd also say that you and Action for Healthy Kids have done a a hell of a lot as well in promoting whole child health and a more holistic approach to to education and and health aligning as well. So it's not just things that I've led. I think it's things that the the whole community has led. But uh, as you were saying, it's been really gratifying to see how not only whole child has become like a mainstay in education nowadays, but just this understanding that health and well-being is critical to an effective education system and effective you know, growth of uh, children and youth as well. Yeah. So can you give us the 30-second version of what the whole child approach is? It's basically, it originated as a move against the push towards academics only. So back in the early 2000s or the, the noughties, as we might call them, there was a strong push in education to focus on testing and focus on academics. And what that did was, yes, it focused on academics, but it began to focus less on less of some of those things that we know are are critical and crucial to an education. So the social-emotional development, the engagement of students, the health and well-being of students, the enjoyment in learning, And so really a whole child approach, as the name suggests, is taking a look at the whole child. What we did at ASCD was 
we framed it on Maslow's hierarchy. So we had five tenants of healthy, safe, engaged, supported and challenged formed in a hierarchy that was replicating Maslow's hierarchy. So things that you need that are fundamental, you know, in Maslow, you've got um, health and and housing and and then belonging and before you get to self-actualization. But for us, it was healthy at the bottom, followed by safe and then engaged, supported and challenged. So really, it was a way for us to start thinking of education as being not just academics, but really it's about developing people who are ready for their life and ready for society. Yeah, and that's a great way to start our conversation today. So as you know, the theme or the premise of this podcast and of all of the work that we do at Action for Healthy Kids, for that matter, is that our early life experiences and the adults who care for us have a transformative impact on our lives. So can you tell us about a transformative moment from your early life? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. I was thinking back about, you know, something that was transformative, but also not necessarily monumental, you know, so it doesn't have to be necessarily a huge impact or a huge incident that occurred. And I was thinking back to my early primary school days back in Australia and how the relationships that I had with some of my teachers in primary school was really foundational. And when I look back in the rearview mirror, you can start to see how these relationships really changed the way that I look at education. And so I think back to some of my early primary school teachers who were just friends. They they built the teaching and learning around relationship development. They made sure that they knew how we were feeling, how we were behaving. And it had a big impact on your life. Yeah, it had a big impact on my life. It's like I I look back at that and it changed the way that I viewed education. And I look back in terms of even now some of the research about what's ineffective in education. And some of those teachers who actually made impact with me were doing those things, whether it was project-based learning or open space learning or different grade cohorts or learning in an outdoor environment. Even even there was one teacher who every school vacation would take four or five kids out on a camping trip and we would go about six or seven hours away from Adelaide where I grew up and went camping out um, near the seaside somewhere. And it was just, it was this time when we got back to nature, we learned things about the world, about nature, about each other. It was just, you know, it was it was like almost a precursor to have sort of outdoor education. It's not always those monumental things that uh, that you remember most. Sometimes it's the little things. You know, some of those things were big things too, but sometimes it's those little things that teachers or others do, and they have a big impact, oversized impact on your life. One of the articles in the New York Times today asked in its headline, are schools ready for the next big surge? And then the article went on to describe the health infrastructure in our education system as rickety. After all we've gone through, one would think that school health would be at the very top of our agenda. But as you and I both know, that's still not yet the case generally across our country. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about across the world. All the way back in 2004, when you were the project director of West Ed, uh, you helped facilitate a report called Ensuring No Child is Left Behind, which discussed children's health risks and resilience 
and how those factors connect to academic success. Given the obvious relevance of this topic today, what did that report indicate, and what do you make of how we're addressing health issues today in schools? You know what, it's I'm not the only one by any means, but there's been so much research over the years that has talked about what we need, about how health and well-being, and not just physical health, but social, emotional, mental health and well-being is critical for child and youth development. And so what that report was saying back in 2004, and that was one of the sort of precursors to the positive psychology reports we put out as well, is that the way that students feel like they belong, the way they believe they're cared for is critical. And to go one layer down from that in terms of at least that Maslow's hierarchy, their physical health and well-being is critical. And if we don't start to get those two things right, sound, then it's really hard for us to actually start to improve and work on the skills of, let's say, collaboration or problem solving or academic development or rigor or pushing the individual. And for some reason, we seem to have forgotten this or perhaps ignored this truth that health and well-being are fundamental. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we're ignoring this truth? The way that I look at it, and I try and sort of simplify some of these things, you could get into a whole dissertation about why, why this is. But the way that I look at it is that we've gone through a period in our history as a country and a society where we've broken things up into little silos. We've spent a number of decades where you carve things up, whether it's health, and then inside health, you have physical health, you have mental health, you have emotional health, and then education, and then you have the different layers and you have the different subjects. We've carved things up into their own little neat boxes and silos, thinking that we are becoming clearer on what is needed inside those boxes and silos. However, what we have lost is the way that these little boxes and silos interact with each other. If you look at your own health and well-being, you know that if you are stuck indoors for a month or two and cannot socialize with other people, it has effects on your mental health and it has effects on your physical health and well-being. It has effects on the way you're able to study or the way you're able to do your work. You know that if you have a broken ankle, that is going to impact not just the way that you walk and you run, it's going to impact the way that you feel. It's going to impact the way that you behave, the way that you interact. I was going to say, and every parent knows that what you just said to be absolutely positively true. You can't look at and segment one aspect of a child's life and differentiate it from everything else. You just, you just can't do that. Uh, we know that it's really obvious. So I want to jump into one of those segments, but then Sean, we are going to circle back to the holistic uh, view of uh, health and education. So, uh, so let's talk a little bit about stress in the educational environment and the impact it has. There's a few statistics I think are really interesting. 60% of teachers experience job-related stress. This was a recent survey. Only 9% said that they rarely or never experienced stress. In one study, 16% of teachers said they dread going to work every day. They dread going to work every day. A recent RAND study found that one in four teachers said they were likely to leave their jobs during the pandemic. 
42% of principals have similar thoughts, by the way. So it's not just teachers. 41% of teachers acknowledge that they're less effective when they're stressed. I would imagine there's 41%, maybe more of anyone doing any job who is less effective when they're stressed, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We Mm -hmm. all experience that. According to Patricia Jennings, who's a professor of education at University of Virginia, my alma mater, by the way, who studies uh, teacher stress, and this is a quotation, the demands on teachers have gotten greater and they have fewer resources and fewer choices. When you combine those two things, you're basically putting teachers in a vice. So before we get to any solution, what's your take on teacher stress, why it's so important, and what else do we know about it? It would, it would be echoing exactly everything we've said in the past 10 minutes about student stress, mental health, and well-being. Just because someone has gained an extra decade or two does not mean that they're absent or they can be buffered from stress. And in fact, the stress increases very often as you get older because you have more responsibilities. Again, it goes back to this idea that we focus so much attention on academics. We focus so much attention on one aspect of education that we have left alone some of those fundamental needs that teachers have. So you have this almost perfect storm, unfortunately, where you've had less funding in the last couple of years. It's changed in the last 18 months a little bit, but you've had less funding in the last decade or two going towards teacher professional development, going towards staff and adult health and well-being, going towards a more holistic approach to education. And then in this perfect storm, you've had the crises, plural, of COVID, of racial unrest, of insecurity in this country that has been placed very often at the feet of some of those first-line responders and teachers and educators and principals are first-line responders. During the summer of 2020, you had not only teachers and principals, but you had support professionals out there making sure that the kids got their food, making sure that the buses had Wi-Fi, making sure that every classroom that could be used was being used for something, whether it was storing desks so you could make six feet separation, everybody was was chipping in to make sure that education in some form could continue. And it was it was amazing what teachers and educators did. Unfortunately, what we've seen is we've seen the funding and the attention and the resources lagging behind that. We tend always in this, well, not just this country, in most countries, to wait for a problem and then slowly react after it, as opposed to understanding that we have some issues, we know about these things, we should preempt and we should prepare. Yeah, unlike you, Sean, my longer term background is not in education. I've worked in the nonprofit sector my whole career. One thing that struck me when I joined Action for Healthy Kids is I'm going to call them fads, is how we move from one issue to another issue in the education system, to another issue. We lack this consistency and dedication to making sure that, you know, the one issue that comes up gets resolved and then we can move on. And so we jump from one topic to another and it's very challenging. Teacher self-care is one of those topics that has come up, I, I hope, 
my goodness, that we don't jump from topic to topic again because it's such an important one. What happens in schools when teachers are stressed? And I mean, let's make it real. What really happens when stress impacts the educational environment? When stress impacts teachers and the educational environment, you all know that you perform poorly when you're stressed. You react quicker. You're quicker to argue. You have less patience. You have less understanding. You have less empathy. It's that, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist by any means, but it's those fight and flight hormones that get released in your brain. So you are on edge. You are probably, if you look at it from a pedagogical point of view, you are doing exactly the opposite of what you want to be doing in terms of being a patient, understanding, empathetic, respectful teacher and educator. So these things have been going on now for 18 months for many teachers And I'll also include school principals and superintendents in there as well. Sometimes we think that the higher up you get in that career hierarchy, things get a little bit easier. For many principals and superintendents, they've gotten more difficult because not only are they overseeing more schools, more teachers, more students, but they also very often have fewer support networks and fewer outlets that stress, fewer people to confide in. You know, if you're a not, a not a new teacher, but you're a teacher of five or so years, you probably have some colleagues and some networks that you can trust. If you're a principal of a year or two, you're probably still behaving and acting like that captain of a, of a ship where, you know, you're pointing and the school is is following, which means that you probably don't have a great support network. The other part of your question was what's happening in schools regarding stress and well-being is that schools, actually, I won't just say schools because, as we said with the WISC model, schools are a bit of a mirror of society. They, they reflect what's going on in society. So it's not just schools, it's society. We don't have good outlets and good remediations for adult mental health and well-being. And for the majority of people, the only solution is self-care. So go out, go for a walk, sleep more. Don't be so stressed is advice I read all the time. Well, that's you know easy to say. Do it yourself. Eat better. Take some time for yourself. So the premise, and this is being played out in schools as well, has always been it's up to you to solve your own mental health, social, emotional health, your own stress problems. It's not up to the system which is causing those stress problems. It's up to you to solve yourself And that's just not, especially in this time, that's becoming untenable. You're getting teachers who are burnt out, who are stressed out, and the best we can do is say, all right, please find some extra time in your day where you're already burnt out and already being asked to do another three or four tasks and duties. Please find some more time in your day to now take care and remedy yourself. Sometimes even asking that or putting that onus back onto teachers actually does the opposite 
and adds to their stress and mental health. Yeah. And, and of course, those burnt out, to use your words, stressed out teachers. And this is not pointing the finger of blame. In fact, the exact opposite. Those burnt out, stressed out teachers, that's the behavior they're demonstrating in front of our kids, right? I coach my daughter's basketball team. If I'm burnt out and stressed out and I walk into the gym, if I don't check before I get into that gym, that's how I behave when I get in front of the kids. They feed off of it. That's how they learn their behaviors. And like I said, I'm not pointing blame. There's a bigger systemic issue here that we really need to address. So let's talk about that. Well, here's a a little example about the reaction and the stress, because what we do at the moment at BTS Spark is we look at leadership development, the educational development and leadership development of school leaders. One of the first things that we do is we talk about mind traps and what we call getting in the box. And it's those things that trigger your stress and trigger your anxiety. Now, for some people, it could be the way that another adult reacts to them or interacts with them or asks them to do something. For some, it could be situational about extra tasks being loaded upon them. For many teachers and school leaders, it's just the environment that they find themselves in at the moment. And then what we do is we help teachers and school leaders recognize this and go through some actions about how they can understand, all right, this is a reaction to a trigger and this is how I can adjust. But think about it. If that's one of the first things that we do to help school leaders develop themselves as effective leaders, then that is almost like base level learning that has to be done by everybody. It's it's not enough for us to say, take care of yourself. It's not enough to say, walk away. It's not enough for us to say, take a break. These are skills that need to be learned because if you don't, you're back in that fight or flight mindset, which is just not conducive to teaching and learning, and it's not conducive to developing positive school climates as well. Right. I want to dig in here a little bit. I want to talk about that holistic system in a second, but since you brought up leadership, let's just go there. So a lot of our listeners have probably heard the term trickle-down economics before. This past April, you wrote an article on trickle-down leadership. Can you explain that concept for us? Yeah. So I, I'm not a, I don't believe as most economists don't, I'm not an economist, about trickle-down economics that you know, the if the wealthier make more, then it will eventually trickle down to the rest of us. But there is one area where the trickle-down theory does work, and that's in schools from leadership. So when we're talking about, as we've often are in, in leadership development and are in whole child work and social emotional learning, we're talking about how do we change and how do we impact the culture and the climate in that school. Now, you can have the students influence the culture and the climate. You can have the teachers influence the culture and the climate, all because of their interactions and reactions. But if there was one group of people that has the most influence on the climate and the culture of the school, it's the school leaders. It's the principal and the administration. And the reason is that one they are talking to the whole school. And so they're talking to every stakeholder, every person in that school community when they speak. 
But more importantly, when they speak, they are giving educational credibility to whatever they're conveying to the rest of that school. So when they talk about the need to double down and make sure that we get this this standardised testing raised this year, then that's what the teachers begin to do. When they talk about um, cutting back on extra spending because this is what's important and this is where it needs to move to, that's what happens. When they talk about the need to focus on the whole child, the need to focus on well-being, the need to focus, like we're talking here about how well-being and mental health is critical, and if we don't get that right, then almost nothing else that we do is going to work, that all of a sudden has educational credibility. It's not, no offence, but Rob or Sean talking about it, or it's not just a parent talking about it, or it's even not just a very well-meaning teacher talking about it. It's the person that actually, I wouldn't say dictates, but strongly influences the climate and the culture of that environment talking about it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about how we can, we, meaning our society, can invest in changing, you know, sometimes from the top, uh, our education system. So I worked at Action for Healthy Kids for 14 years now. I was an elected school board member for eight years in my little community in the suburbs of Chicago. And when you look at the education system, most school buildings appear to be what I'll call a manageable size, meaning you could imagine how one would foster change in that building. You know, maybe there are hundreds of kids, maybe there are up to a thousand, maybe at the very, very high end, a couple thousand kids in a school, you know, typically. I mean, I know there are some exceptions to that. And one would think that because of their, you know, manageable size, uh, change would not be overly challenging in a school environment, but it truly is a challenge. And at the same time, it's exceptionally important that we foster change and make sure that our schools and our education system is addressing the kinds of issues that we needed to address today. So let's talk about one of your proposed solutions, especially around teacher stress, and that's the well-being pyramid. Can you, can you walk us through that at a high level quickly? Yeah, certainly. So if we go back to that idea of a pyramid or a hierarchy, and we talked about you know Maslow's hierarchy before, there are certain things on the bottom which have the most influence. And then the higher up the pyramid you get, there are important things, but they have less influence on an outcome. And so the well-being pyramid basically talks about where does the stress come from? What is causing the stress? And in this article that you're um, referring back to, I'm talking about teacher well-being. Now, the stress is coming from the system. The stress is coming from COVID, from these crises. But it's also coming from an education system that is still geared towards academic testing that is still got an accountability system which will punish schools if they don't hit certain marks. So on the bottom of this pyramid, you have the system. On the top of the pyramid, you have what I call self-care. So the answer that we've talked about before, which is what you want people to do is go out and take care of themselves, take up yoga, meditation, eat better, become fitter, all of which work, but it has less influence if you don't start to change what's causing the stress 
in the first place. And then in the middle is basically where I want us to direct more attention right now because putting attention towards self-care is well-intentioned but doesn't have much influence. Putting attention towards the system needs attention but takes a long time and a lot of effort. We have more influence over what happens in that middle section, which I call the group or it's the culture of the school. So what we can start to do from tomorrow or from today is start to change and influence how the adults, especially inside that school building, interact with each other, react to each other. Yeah, it's it's a really smart way of looking at a downstream, midstream, upstream model. And of course, uh, you know, when you're working at the downstream level, and in this case, downstream is that teacher self-care, right? Where you're putting out fires, you know, stress is happening. You're trying at the individual level to foster change, you know, and that needs to be done to your point, because sometimes there's a fire and you need to put it out. Uh, Maybe that's a poor metaphor, but sometimes that needs to happen. But of course, what we need to do is work upstream. You can't go and you can't go from all the way downstream to the upstream, you know, quickly and easily. It takes time. You need to work through that midstream. In your case, the group level of the pyramid. So that just it just makes all kinds of sense, right? That's absolutely positively what we need to do. In that article, I used the same metaphor. I said, typically when you see a fire, you bring the person out, you treat the wounds, and then you try and put out the fire. And in the article, I was saying in education, what we tend to do is we bring the person out, we have them take care of their own wounds, and then we put them back into the fire and we expect something to change. We need to do more than just self-care. We need to start looking at our environments and our systems. Yeah. So over the course of your career, by my count, you've worked in at least five countries across four continents. And let's face it, we can all tell from your accent that you've got some personal international experience yourself. Is there a place, moment, or position you've held that stands out in your mind as the most impactful? I don't know. They've all, they've all been impactful for a different, different reason. It's like I used to be a classroom teacher and a physical education teacher and a history teacher, and it was really wonderful to see students learning, and you can see them learning in real time and changing in real time, and that was wonderful to see. You know, so you know, all right, I'm making an impact. You can see someone coming out of their shell, learning how to be outspoken, learning how to learn a new skill, try a new skill. You can sometimes see, you know, I was a physical education teacher and teaching things like gymnastics, you know, in certain areas was was fantastic or even some other skills, not because they were learning the skills, but what they were learning was they would go into a lesson thinking, I cannot do this. There is no way I can do this. This is not possible for me. And in the space of a lesson, you teach them something that they don't believe they could do and their attitude changes. You know, it flips. All of a sudden they're like, oh, I can do this. And that then becomes a cascading snowball where all of a sudden they believe they can do anything. That's the, you know, some of the beauty of things like outdoor education where you get kids who are going to do rock climbing or abseil down something or do a ropes course and they they they're, they're terrified and they can do it and it changes them that's impactful 
you know, and then as I've sort of moved up and had more sort of influence over different things, the influence is different. You may not see it directly, but you see it indirectly. I'm I'm actually really proud of the work around the whole child uh, initiative that we did and then the the WISC model that we developed. And exactly like you were saying early on, it's like we began that work when it was not popular and we began that work when people were not listening and we did it because we believed it was the right thing to do. And what's been really interesting you know, especially with the WISC model, is that we released that in 2014 as a next evolution of coordinated school health and the way that these two sectors integrate. And it's it's now everywhere. It's now everywhere in terms of the school health, the integration model. And that's just really gratifying to see that something that I helped lead and developed along with other people and we put out there has gone on to be influential. And sometimes it was even in ways that we didn't even expect. You know, you got EPA taking up the model. We've got other organizations looking at it and saying, I know where we we fit in here. I know how what we do can play into this bigger picture. And really all it was was a model to try and show how together these entities and components and sectors can and should work together. Yeah, yeah. Like, like you were mentioning from a moment ago, when you were telling your story about teaching kids, it's now the foundation. It's the new foundation that we are building on, right? So it's very important. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up now, but I do have a couple of final big picture questions for you. But I should say, before I even get into my question, it takes a very special and impassioned person to have the career that you have had. In your own words... What makes education such an important gift to give to the children of the world? If you, if you look at the one thing or two things, education is primarily a function which is planning for the future. We're planning for the future. We want to give our children something that's going to allow them to be influential in the future. It's critical for the world because what we're doing is we're planning how the world is going to look and how our children are going to look and how they're going to behave. I have a book coming out in March from Rutledge called Questioning Education. And this question sort of plays into it. So it's not just a... Yeah, where do you find the time, Sean, is what uh, we all want to know. (laughs) And this is not just a blatant plug for the book, but it relates back to your question. But the, the idea is I think we've looked at the reasons why we have education incorrectly for a long time. We focused on the content, the what and the how. And what I'm calling for is to to flip our system and look at the why, much like Simon Sinek is talking about, but look at the who. So education to me is not only explaining things and fostering curiosity, it's having us look at who we are as an individual, who we want to become as an individual but it's also looking at who we are as a collective. Who are we as a society and what is this society that we want to become? And so those things, those questions for me are all tied up pretty fundamental in education, or at least they should be. Okay. This is going to be my last question and we'll make it a quick one. What is your greatest wish for today's children and youth 
and the teachers who impact their lives each and every day. My greatest wish is that education becomes a compelling, engaging, meaningful endeavor. And that's both for the students, but also for the teachers. Because I think it can and it should be. We are born curious. The first five years, you know, almost until we start formal schooling, we spend most of the time exploring, asking, looking, doing our own little experiments, not only of what we can do, but what's out in the world. So learning is part of our DNA. So yeah, for me, it would be to have our students and also our teachers be really meaningfully engaged in learning. It shouldn't be that hard. And I think that would be fantastic. Well, Sean, I have to say thank you for all that you do. And thanks for all of these years of partnership and collaboration. It's been a a wonderful ride and I can't wait to uh, experience the coming years in partnership with you too, because we've got a lot of work to do. So thanks so much for your time and everything you do. Thanks very much, Rob. And, uh, you know, back at you and the work of Action for Healthy Kids that you've led so well for, for many years. Cheers. A huge thank you to Sean for taking time to speak with us today about some of the many incredible global initiatives he's involved in and the transformational research he's helped facilitate. Thanks as well to you for listening. Remember, you can find more information by visiting our website at actionforhealthykids.org or checking us out on Instagram and Twitter. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and leave a review so more people can find us or check out some of our past episodes. I'm Rob Basegli, and thanks for listening to Kids Can from Action for Healthy Kids.